Hej och välkommen till ett nytt avsnitt av Fri Tankes podcast som ger dig intervjuer och samtal om vetenskap och filosofi i upplysningens anda. Den här gången möter vi Richard Dawkins i en ljudupptagning från seminariet Verklighetens magi som också är titeln på Richard Dawkins nya bok. Han introduceras av Christer Sturmark. Richard Dawkins is the former Charles Simony professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. The Wall Street Journal has said that his passion is supported by an awe-inspiring literary craftsmanship. And the New York Times Review of Books has hailed him as a writer who understands the issues so clearly that he forces his reader to understand them too. This is the man, or, or so the joke goes, who wants to explain everything with evolution, even gravity. Just look around you. All things that fall upwards are since long gone. Left are only those things that fall down. <laughs> Obviously, this is just a joke, but it's a joke expressing great affection for the one and only Professor Richard Dawkins. I don't want for a moment to uh, claim that I deserve the Nobel Prize for Literature, but I do think that it isn't obvious why the Nobel Prize for Literature should always go to a novelist or a poet or a playwright. Science really is a proper vehicle for great literature. And so, not me, but one day a scientist ought to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. I've been listening to half the talks <laughs> this evening, um, and the other half, I, I think I got the important word, Vettenskarp. Uh, science is the poetry of reality. I should be talking about the magic of reality, which is another way of putting the poetry of reality. It's gone. But I was going to call attention to the uh, field of stars that... There it is again. Um, It is a truly astonishing thing. When I was was young, I used to go to church, and we had a, a hymn that went, It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. After that, it rather went off the rails, but... When you look at a picture like that, which is just a small fragment of the universe, and you reflect that possibly on only one, but certainly on one of the stars in the universe, there is a planet in which the laws of physics have been transmuted through a very strange process to give rise to objects of quite staggering complexity and beauty to give rise to us and our brains, which eventually proved capable of coming close to understanding the entire process that gave rise to us. And that process 
which was discovered by Charles Darwin, had the effect of taking the ordinary laws of physics, which are extremely simple, and causing them to give rise to objects of ever-increasing complexity until finally, as I say, they turned upon the universe and uh, understood it or came close to understanding it. I have twice visited the uh, CERN establishment that we heard about earlier. And I, I have to confess, I am a, a sentimental person. I know I'm supposed to be a sort of heartless robot. Uh, but I am a sentimental person, and I love poetry. Uh, and I was moved almost literally to tears by the experience of seeing CERN. Um, I tried to convey something of my poetic feeling, my sentimental feeling, uh, in my book, uh, I forget which book it was, and I think it might have been The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, and I referred to having visited the uh, Large Hadron Collider and how immensely moved I was. Um, unfortunately, uh, there was a misprint in the book, and The Large Hadron Collider was rendered as, are you getting there? The Large Hardon Collider. <laughs> All my poetry was shot to pieces by this. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, I, I was sufficiently amused by it. Um, unfortunately, the, um, the publisher's proofreader uh, discovered the error and corrected it. I begged her to overlook it, but she said it was more than her job was worth. I told this story uh, once when I was lecturing in America, and you know in America they're very politically correct, not quite as politically correct as here, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, and they had uh, a, a, a woman at the side of the stage uh, signaling in, um, in sign language for the benefit of, of deaf people. And when I told this story of the Large Hard-On Collider, I couldn't resist glancing over. <laughs> I, I'm hoping my computer hasn't run out of electricity during all the... Um, looks as though it may have done. I may have to ad-lib without, without my slides, never mind. Yes, it looks as though it's run out of electricity. I don't know if there's a technical person here who'd like to have a go at re resuscitating it while I, I go on talking. It should come on when you just do that, but I don't. Hmm. Ah, okay, good. Uh, while it's firing up, I'll, I'll just go on uh, talking. Um, I was very um, intrigued listening to, uh, as I say, half the talks, um, and in particular, um, listening to Lona Frank talking about uh, the brain, and that is one thing which, unfortunately, I left out of The Magic of Reality. The Magic of Reality is a book about science for children, or for young people, and for old people, and all in between as well. Uh, and it, each chapter in the book has uh, the same form. Each chapter in the book has a question at the beginning, like, what is the sun? What is a rainbow? What is an earthquake? Uh, and then the chapter goes on to myths. 
in answer to the question, and then it finally goes on to the real answer, the scientific answer. And I chose arbitrarily about a dozen questions in order to do this, give this, this treatment of question, myth, reality. Uh, and one that I didn't do was the brain, and I think maybe if there ever was a second edition, uh, I would uh, probably have to do that. Um, also, genomics, which she mentioned. I didn't really go much into genomics. Um, she stressed that genetic determinism is wrong, which of course is true. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that the central message of my first book, The, Sen the Selfish Gene, is wrong. The central message of The Selfish Gene was quite frequently misunderstood as being a message of genetic determinism, a message that genes are everything, that we are controlled by our genes, that we are um, uh, the, at the mercy of our genes. Um, that wasn't the message at all. That would have been a message of embryology. And embryology is quite a different thing from evolution. The selfish gene is about evolution. Uh, so it doesn't actually matter how deterministic or non-deterministic Hang on, I'll just type in the password. I hope you can't read it on the screen. <laughs> no, okay. Um, the, the message of the, of the selfish gene is all about evolution. It is that the unit of natural selection is the gene, or more generally, the replicator. In order for the process of Darwinian natural selection to work, there have to be coded information, coded information which is potentially immortal. And that's a remarkable thing about DNA, that the information in DNA... Uh, oh, okay, thank you. I think it may be all right, actually. Yeah, it's fine. Um, the information in DNA is potentially immortal. The individual DNA molecule is not immortal. That only lasts for a few weeks. But the information which is faithfully copied, like Old Testament scribes copying the book of Deuteronomy, whatever it is, um, uh, every 80 years. The, 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 the information in DNA is faithfully copied, and potentially the identical information can still be there hundreds of millions of years later. Of course, not all of it is, and one of the reasons why not all of it is, is that some of it survives better than others. And why does it survive better than others? It survives better than others because it's better at building bodies, better at contributing together with other genes to the co collective, joint, cooperative enterprise of building a body. And because the genes live inside the bodies that they build, or most of them do, if the body dies, the genes die. If the body fails to reproduce, the genes die. And so, on average, over many generations, those genes that are good at it, where it means building bodies that assist them to survive and reproduce, uh, will be the ones that we see millions of years later. So the world is full of self-replicating information, which is good at surviving, obviously, and the world is full of the machines built by that self-replicating information. The world is full of bodies 
which are good at surviving and reproducing in their different ways, which in the case of birds is flying, in the case of fish is swimming, dolphins are swimming, in the case of moles it's digging, and, and so on. Uh, and in the case of humans, it's, what shall we say, thinking. Right, let's see if this now works. Good. Um, as I said, this is a book for uh, young people of all ages. Um, the English edition had a subtitle, How We Know What's Really True. And I'm very delighted, actually, that the Swedish edition doesn't have that. I think it's unnecessary. I think that American publishers especially are obsessed with subtitles. You can't look at an American book without seeing a subtitle. They usually don't actually need it. It's nice to have a certain amount of um, enigmatic curiosity as to what the, the title itself means. That's a, a, a set of the 12 chapters, uh, what is reality, what is magic, that just sets up the meaning of the, of the title. Who was the first person? And I shall spend a certain amount of time on that chapter. Why are there so many different kinds of animals? Um, what are things made of? Why do we have night and day? Why do we have winter and summer? Most people know why we have night and day. As for why we have winter and summer, you'd be surprised at the number of people who think that we have winter and summer because in winter the earth is furthest from the sun and in uh, summer the earth is closest to the sun. What any Australians here? <laughs> what is the sun? What is a rainbow? Why and when and how did everything begin? Are we alone? That's an interesting one. That's a very speculative one. Wondering whether life on this planet is unique or, or, or whether um, there's life all over the universe. And I may have, some, have time to talk about that as well. Uh, what is an earthquake? Why do bad things happen? That's a rather strange chapter. I mean... It really, it's just why does anything happen? But you'd be amazed at the number of people who sort of think that believe in a kind of sod's law. If a thing can go wrong, it will. If you drop a piece of toast and marmalade, it always falls marmalade side down, that kind of thing. And finally, what is a miracle? Which is, in a way, reverting to the theme of magic again. So the, the first chapter, defining the terms, what is reality, what is magic? And I distinguish three different meanings of the word magic. Um, there's supernatural magic, the magic of childhood fairy tales, the magic of spells and um, sleeping beauties being wakened by frogs kissing them, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> um, did I get that wrong? Anyway, um, uh, and Cinderella's coach and, and things. I don't know whether you have the same... Uh, whether, whether, is, is Cinderella known? Yeah, OK. Um, Maybe it even originated here, I don't know. Um, then there's conjuring magic, the, the sort we saw so spellbindingly at the, at the very first act um, this evening. Um, and then finally, the magic of reality, which is Vettenskarp. Fairy tale spells, uh, frogs turning into princes, pumpkins turning into coaches. Nobody really believes in magic spells of this kind. Uh, except for the special kind of magic spells which goes by the name of miracles and which religious people believe. And I'll come to that at the end if, if I have time. And then um, conjuring tricks. 
I find them intriguing um, because there are a, a lot of people who will believe in something miraculous having happened simply because they don't understand it. There is a well-known charlatan whom I shall not name because he's notoriously litigious. Uh, he even sues people for saying that a well-known spoon bender is a charlatan. <laughs> you don't even have to mention his name, which I just haven't, but I did just say he was a well-known spoon bender. Um, there are charlatans who are actually no more than ordinary conjurers, but they make a much richer living than ordinary conjurers do because they pretend that they actually have supernatural, paranormal or psychic powers. And they are um, pernicious and evil. And uh, it's uh, one of the good things that, that honest conjurers do is to replicate their tricks, but tell the audience uh, that they are actually only tricks. Unfortunately, this hardly ever works. The, the problem is that uh, a, a genuine, honest conjurer will do exactly the same trick as one of these charlatans. And people say, oh, yes, well, all right, well, that's a trick. But I bet that one isn't. <laughs> the lesson from conjurers like the one we saw this evening and, and like the other ones that, that we've all seen is that any ordinary person will assume that what they've seen is something supernatural unless they're really, really critically minded. And it's a very useful lesson to have honest conjurers showing us what can be done, showing us how easy it is to fool ourselves. And finally, um, the poetic magic of science itself, uh, the one that I mean in my title. We're moved to tears by a beautiful piece of music, we describe the performance as magical. We gaze up at the stars, as we have all evening on the, on the screen, uh, and we say the sight is pure magic. Or we might use the phrase for a gorgeous sunset, uh, a lovely alpine landscape, a rainbow against a dark sky. Magical in this sense means deeply moving, exhilarating, something that gives us goosebumps, something that makes us feel more fully alive. Uh, and my mission in this book is to show young people, all people, that reality, as interpreted critically by science, has that magical, poetic, good-to-be-alive quality. Supernatural magic, spells, frogs turning into princes, pumpkins turning into coaches. It's not just that such things never happen. It's not just that such things have never been observed to happen. It's important to understand that such things cannot happen. Or rather, if they did happen, they would, be, uh, they would violate the laws of probability. Um, if you imagine the task of um, putting together, of changing, say, a pumpkin into a coach or a frog into a prince, in one fell swoop, the problem is that both frogs and princes are very complicated things and complicated in different ways. And the number of ways in which you could recombine the bits of a frog and get something other than a prince is, is, is obviously huge. Um, <laughs> so, or, or to take the, um, the uh, pumpkin turning into a coach, make it a little bit easier for the fairy godmother by giving her not a pumpkin, but a sort of IKEA kit 
for making a coach. So you've got a packing case full of bits to make a coach, and, and you open it up. And instead of following the instructions and sticking them together in the right order, you just shake them around in a great big bag, and out will fall, you hope, a coach. Well, you go on doing that for a billion, trillion years, and you're never going to get a coach. Um, this is why, this is the deep fundamental reason why supernatural magic of all kinds must be discounted. Um, in, in some cases, of course, you can actually count the odds. Uh, if you're playing bridge with four people and uh, you um, pick up your hand and it turns out to be a perfect hand in spades. And so you, you lay down your cards with utter wonderment, utter incredulity, and say, well, obviously, I've won this, this, this hand. And then one by one, the other three players lay down their cards. And one's got perfect hearts, one's got nothing but diamonds, and one's got uh, nothing but clubs. Well, would that be supernatural magic? Um, we can calculate the odds against it happening by chance, um, as you all have worked out in your head by now. It's one in 536 octillion, 447 septillion, 737 sextillion, 765 quintillion, 488 quadrillion, 792 trillion, 839 billion, 237 million, 440,000. Um, I also stole a look at the, at the sign language woman while I was doing that, by the way. <laughs> Uh, if you sat down and played cards for a trillion years, you might on one occasion get a perfect deal uh, at, at, at bridge. Um, but of course the interesting thing is that that particular deal, the perfect deal, is no more improbable than every other deal at cards that has ever been made. It's only that the others don't strike us as unusual. Well, where does that leave life then? Because um, Frogs can't turn into princes, but nevertheless, frogs have evolved, and princes have evolved, uh, and um, so have says everything else. Um, so, what's the answer? The answer obviously cannot be chance. We've just proved that it cannot be chance. And so, the the main um, canard that is uh, uttered by creationists that evolution is a theory of chance is just nonsense. The whole point about Darwin's theory of evolution is that it is the very opposite of a chance process. Natural selection is a non-random process. Each step of the way, each step of the evolutionary way, each generation could be seen as a chance step in the sense that the mutation that is offered for selection is random, random only in the sense that it's not directed towards any particular end, towards any particular improvement. Natural selection favors those that do well, of course. And at the end of, say, a hundred generations of this non-random selection, of random variation, this cumulative process inching its way up a slowly a slow and gradual ramp of improvement can give rise to such prodigies of apparent design as the vertebrate eye or the vertebrate heart or whatever it is. I said I'd spend a little time on chapter two, which is who was the first person. And like the other chapters, uh, it begins with myths, 
Um, I begin with a Tasmanian Aboriginal myth of who was the first person, um, go on to the uh, Hebrew Genesis myth, which is too well known to recount, um, and then, uh, for good measure, uh, a Norse myth. Um, Norse myth, actually, I'm sorry to say, is a slightly boring one, as far as I can make out. Um, it, it seems that Odin was one day walking along the seashore with his brothers, who were also gods, and they came upon two tree trunks. One of these tree trunks they turned into the first man, whom they called Ask. The other they turned into the first woman, called Embla. And they then gave them the breath, breath of life, followed by consciousness, faces, and the gift of speech. Um, well, that's one of many, many, many origin myths, uh, and we turn with some relief to the scientific answer to the question, who was the first person? Which is rather surprising, there never was a first person, because every person had to have parents, and those parents had to be people too, and they had to have parents, and they had to have parents, and so on, and they all had to be members of the same species as their children and as their parents. The same with rabbits, same with crocodiles, same with dragonflies. There never was a first rhinoceros, never a first elephant, uh, never a, f a first panda, and so on. Every creature ever born maybe with negligible exceptions, belonged to the same species as its parents. So that must mean that every creature ever born belonged to the same species as his grandparents, and his great-grandparents, and his great-great-grandparents, and so on, forever. Not forever. It's not as simple as that. And to explain this to the, my child readers, use a thought experiment, a thought experiment, a Gedanken experiment done in your imagination. Find a picture of yourself and put it on the table. And then you find a picture of your father and put that on the table. And then a picture of his father and so on and so on. And you build up a tower of pictures going back and back and back one generation at a time. Uh, and you go on piling them and piling them and piling them up. Um, and let's sort of arbitrarily make a stop to how high we make the tower. How many cards shall we, how many photographs shall we place on top of each other? Well, I've arbitrarily chosen the figure of 185 million. 185 million postcards on top of each other. Um, that would be about... 220,000 feet high, that would be 180 New York skyscrapers standing on top of each other. Um, obviously, it would topple over, so let's tip it over, put it on a bookshelf, bookshelf 40 miles long, and you start at this end of the bookshelf, which is your own photograph, and you walk slowly and slowly and slowly along the bookshelf, pulling out pictures every now and again to uh, examine them. Um, when you get to the far end, you pull out the picture of your 185 million greats-grandfather. <laughs> That's true, even though it's also true that every one of those photographs belongs to the same species as its neighbours. Uh, 
I'm going to walk along, pick out a few as we go. Um, well, first I should say that in, in case anybody has, I mean, there are people who have trouble with, with reconciling that particular apparent paradox. They can't understand how it can be that every child ever born is the same species as its parents, and yet if you go back 185 million, um, it turns out to be a fish. Um, it's not actually that difficult to understand because we already have plenty of other examples of gradual change. Uh, you were once a baby, uh, and then you became a toddler, and then you became a child, and then you became a teenager, and then you became a, a young adult, and then you became middle-aged, and so on, and then you became old, if you are old. Um, and yet there never was a day when you said to yourself, uh, last night I went to bed middle-aged, and this morning I seem to be old. Uh, it doesn't happen like that. There never was a moment when you ceased to be a child and became adult. For legal purposes, we define whatever it is, the 18th birthday, the 21st birthday, is different in different countries, um, as, the, as the age at which you're allowed to vote, the age at which you may be sent to war, that kind of thing. But we know that that's just a legal convenience. There's nothing magical about the 18th birthday. So we're actually quite used to the idea that things change gradually, and all you have to do is transpose that idea from the development of an individual to the sort of cinematic change that you get as you go from generation to generation. So every photograph along that series is, is the same species as, as its neighbours, and you would have to go um, maybe 10,000, maybe 100,000 um, generations before you got an appreciable difference. By appreciable, I mean more than just the ordinary difference that all of us have anyway from each other. If you were to go back, um, say, a hundred thousand years to your four thousand great-grandfather, uh, you would pretty much be seeing a, mod a modern human. There might be a very, very slight uh, difference. If you were to, were to walk back a million years uh, to your 50,000 greats-grandfather, that would be different enough to count as a different species, Homo erectus, uh, and probably wouldn't be able to, um, to interbreed with, that, with them. Um, I've, in the book, I, I made this little fantasy of a time machine. There's the time machine. Um, and um, the idea is that you go back in time in 10,000-year hops, and each 10,000-year hop you take on board a, a new passenger from the people or whatever they are that you meet. Well, first of all, you try to mate with them. Um, <laughs> see if you can breed a child. Um, and 10,000 years ago, no problem. Um, you, you breed perfectly well. So you pick up somebody from 10,000 years ago, put them in the time machine, hop back another 10,000 years, and so on and so on and so on. And what you would find is that in each 10,000-year hop, the most recently picked-up passenger could happily mate with the new people that you meet when you, when you land. But after a sufficiently large number of hops, that's no longer possible. So we could no longer interbreed with Homo erectus, probably. We don't know that, of course, but probably. Um, but every intermediate step of the way could interbreed with, e with each other. Um, looking at a few others, your 
250,000 greats-grandfather about six million years ago. That was the common ancestor between ourselves and chimpanzees. Uh, it's not a chimpanzee, it's the common ancestor that we share with chimpanzees. Uh, chimpanzees have had just as long to evolve since that common ancestor as we have. One of the commonest fallacies you'll find when talking to creationists is they think we're descended from chimpanzees and they're mystified, or they think we ought to be mystified by why there are still chimpanzees. Um, your 1,500,000 greats-grandfather 25 million years ago would have looked like a monkey and would have been the common ancestor of ourselves and uh, old world monkeys. Your seven million greats-grandfather 63 million years ago would have been something like a tarsia or a loris or bush baby or something like that, um, the common ancestor of modern bush babies. Your 45 million greats-grandfather, 105 million years ago, a sort of shrew-like creature. Your 170 million greats-grandmother, 310 million years ago, uh, a sort of ancestor, a sort of reptilian-like ancestor, a sort of um, lizard-like creature. 175 million greats, a sort of salamandery creature, uh, and then finally we return to the 185 million greats-grandfather, uh, which is a fish. And of course, the line of photographs goes wending its way on into the past, um, back to the mists of time where we no longer have fossils and can only guess as to what our more remote ancestors were like. In the next chapter, why are there so many different kinds of animals? And um, this is the other sort of main aspect of evolution, the fact that it branches, and uh, I discuss this, why it, why it happens. It, probably the most interesting way in which it happens is um, that it starts with geographical isolation, uh, and a population of animals gets separated on, say, two different islands, or a continent and an offshore island. And once they're separated, they're then free to evolve in different directions. Until they're separated, sexual mixing, sexual reproduction, chains them together, makes it impossible for them to diverge because sexual mixing keeps, keeps, them, um, keeps them together. Um, I was um, just speculating in the car coming from the airport today um, about the analogy between biological evolution and language and the fact that language too, as Darwin noted, uh, diverges in very much the same kind of way, and you can draw family trees of, of languages. Um, and the main difference, as far as I can see, is that with languages, it's possible for them, having diverged, to come together again, um, as, as English, for example, is clearly a mixture of uh, Germanic and Romance languages. Um, but there must come an intermediate stage as languages diverge, when we call them something like dialects, and they haven't yet quite become languages. And I was speculating to the, the two uh, charming women who met me at the airport and were driving me to the hotel, um, that the definition of when a dialect uh, has diverged sufficiently far to become a language 
would be an operational definition of the following form. Um, if you meet somebody who's the other side of a fairly recent divide, such that they speak the same language but say with a rather different accent, if you tried to talk to them imitating their accent, they would probably hit you because they would think that you're insulting them by, um, uh, by mimicking, by, by um, taking the mickey. Whereas, and, and, and um, that would be the case, for example, if I were to go to Scotland and start going hoots on the new and things like that, I, I, would be, um, I, would, I would be thumped, especially in a Glasgow pub. Whereas if I were to go to Germany and, and, or, or, or Sweden and, and, and speak Swedish, my guess is that you'd probably be rather pleased. Um, and however badly I did it, you'd probably be welcome the fact that I, was, that I was trying. So at some point, as the divergence goes on, it ceases from, a, from an interaction of hostility when you try to co communicate using the other one to, to becoming an, uh, the exact um, opposite. Of, of hostility, and I was asking them in the car whether the Scandinavian languages possibly are on the cusp of somewhere between uh, where you get thumped if you try to um, talk the other, other language and where it's treated as flattery, as where it's treated as, as a compliment. So I leave that thought with you. Uh, why do we have night and day? Why do we have winter and summer? I mentioned that already. Um, what is the sun? Plenty of lovely myths about the sun, of course, sun worshippers and things like that. Um, and then the real truth about what the sun is, that a star, a relatively ordinary star. Um, yes, this is a little animation um, of moving away from the sun. You see the sun's now disappeared. We're moving away. We're getting a, a picture for the size of the universe here. All these other stars. And as we move further away, we start to see galaxies. There's the Milky Way, our galaxy. As we move away from that, we start to see other galaxies coming into the picture. These are now all galaxies. <laughs> what is a rainbow? When and how did everything begin? Are we alone? Well, I said I would spend a little more time on this one of um, Are We Alone? Um, it, it's a chapter that I had difficulty finding myths for because the, the very idea that we live in a larger universe where the question could even arise of whether this planet is the only one that has life simply didn't occur to people. So for this chapter alone, I had to resort to modern myths, and there are any number of modern myths on the subject of Are We Alone? Um, some astonishingly high proportion of the population of the United States of America believe, are absolutely convinced, that they personally have been abducted by aliens in flying saucers who have subjected them to the most horrific sexual experiments uh, and then brought them back. Um, and their grounds for believing this um, are well, they might convince some people. In one case, a man was convinced of this because he was subject to rather frequent nosebleeds. And the only possible explanation for that is that he had a device implanted in his nose to beam back information to the, to the uh, flying saucer. Um, another one 
was convinced of it, convinced that he was born of alien parents because he was a, a different color, slightly different color from either of his parents, that, that kind of thing. Well, the scientific question, are we alone? This is a curious one because it's one to which we have really no idea at all how to answer. Oh, we can't answer it. We do have an idea how to answer it. We do have an idea of the kind of things we would need to know in order to answer the, the question of the likelihood that we are alone. Um, the number of planets on which life might possibly have arisen, the number of planets in the universe, uh, you have to begin by counting the number of stars in the universe, that's one estimate. Uh, 10 to the 22, there are other estimates, but it's anyway, it's a very, very large number. Um, until recently, we didn't know whether other stars than our sun had planets, and it was only a, a matter of sort of the um, principle of mediocrity, as it's called, the principle that it's unlikely that we are unique on this, this particular solar system, so the chances are that other stars do have planets, but it's only recently that we've actually found evidence that there are other stars which have planets, and it's now looking as though probably the majority of stars have, have planets. So the number of planets around in the universe is exceedingly large. Now, obviously many of them are not going to be suitable for life, but nevertheless they're very, very large. Now, there are people who have an almost visceral reaction to the idea that we might not be alone. There are people who, um, who maybe have a scientific objection. There are people who think that life is such a fantastically improbable thing to arise, that we are alone in the universe. And if you meet such people, it's worth pointing out something like this to them. In order to sustain your belief that we are unique in the universe, you would have to be committed to the view that life was so vanishingly, staggeringly, stupefyingly improbable that it's only arisen once in 10 to the 22 solar systems. In order to believe that, you would have to say that the origin of life on this planet, whatever chemical events took place in the primeval soup, wherever it was, that gave rise to the first life, that the origin of life was a ludicrously improbable event. So improbable that any chemist who spends his life in the lab trying to work out how it happened, trying to develop a theory, trying to um, reproduce the conditions in the early uh, primeval soup and see whether he could get, the, get life, ar life arising, would be not just wasting his time, but ridiculously wasting his time, because if it only happened once in 10 to the 22 opportunities, then what we're looking for in our theory of the origin of life is not a plausible theory, not even a slightly plausible theory. It's a theory so implausible as to be judged pretty much impossible, happening only once in 10 to the 22 opportunities. So. That still, that still could be true, because it, it really could be the case that the origin of life is a staggeringly improbable event, such that it only uh, happened once. And then the anthropic principle kicks in, 
where you say, well, if it did only happen once, then that place where it happened had to be here, because here, here we are talking about it. Um, I don't for a moment believe it's that improbable. Um, it's a, a difficult problem. It hasn't been solved. Chemists haven't yet managed to work out exactly what did happen in the origin of life, but there are some very promising ideas floating around. Um, we know the kind of thing that it had to be. The origin of life had to be the origin of the first gene in the general sense of gene. It had to be the origin of the first self-replicating code. And the reason for that is that you can't have evolution uh, without self-replicating information. I suppose I'm making an additional assumption there, which I ought to come clean about and be explicit about. I'm making the assumption that life depends upon some kind of Darwinian process. I have uh, conjectured that this must be the case. I, I could be wrong, uh, but um, I've given, I think, what are cogent reasons for believing that however strange and weird and alien and different life elsewhere in the universe might be, there is one thing that we already know about it. It will be Darwinian life. It will have come about through something like, something analogous to the same process of gradual step-by-step -step change due to some form of natural selection. And that depends upon some kind of genetics. I would conjecture further that it probably depends upon digital genetics. Um, one of the things that Lona Frank didn't mention uh, when she's talking about um, uh, the nature of genes is that they're digital. And um, they're digital not just in the Mendelian sense that you, any particular gene you either get or you don't get, but also within each gene, the DNA code itself is so digital, is so almost exactly like uh, a computer tape that it's possible nowadays to say that, uh, that genetics has become a branch of, of information technology. So my conjecture is that, that life depends upon Darwinian evolution, and my further conjecture would be that you can't have Darwinian evolution without, uh, without genetics, and it pretty much, I think, has to be digital genetics because only digital codes have sufficiently high fidelity to have this property of potentially lasting for uh, millions of generations. Um, so the origin of life, then, had to be the origin of the first digital code. Some random event in chemistry, a molecule by sheer luck was put together, which had the property of making copies of itself, copies of more than one kind, say so that you get variety, capable of mutating, capable of copying inaccurately, and those inaccurate copies themselves being replicators, being capable of, um, of, being of being copied. That's a pretty tall order. It happened here, and unless you want to believe that life is unique here, uh, it must have happened in many other places, and it cannot be all that improbable an event. But notice it's still allowed to be a very improbable event, and still happen a billion times in the universe. If there are a billion different life forms dotted around the universe, because the universe is so prodigiously large, life is still 
hugely rare. The islands of life that there would be, if there are just a billion of them, would be so spaced out that it's quite likely that none of them ever has the chance to meet any of the other ones, which is rather sad. Next chapter, what is an earthquake? And that, of course, gets us into the whole fascinating subject of plate tectonics, uh, geology. The subject of geology has been revolutionized, really, in, in my lifetime. And when I was an undergraduate, um, the, the subject of um, plate tectonics was only just, just beginning. And it was possible for Charles Elton, the great um, Oxford ecologist, whom Stafford may have met, I don't know, yes. Um, it was possible when lecturing, when he was lecturing to us to take a vote. That's not how you do science, but nevertheless, that's what Charles Elton did. Um, and I think we split about 50-50. Well, now, nowadays, there's no question about it. Plate tectonics is true, um, and we know in great detail um, what, what, what has happened and can predict what will happen. And, and that's what earthquakes are. Why do bad things happen? Well, as I said, this is just an aspect of why do things happen. But it was an, it was an opportunity for me to um, try to dispel the rather frequent tendency for people to um, superstitiously think that the world is somehow out to get them. Some people think that they are inherently lucky or inherently uh, unlucky, that they're jinxed. There are well-known gamblers' fallacies, um, people in Las Vegas um, casinos who think that because black has been come coming up a lot, it's red's turn, that kind of thing. Um, and these various sort of um, gamblers' ruin um, fallacies. So it's an opportunity to, um, to teach the, the young people who I hope read the book um, about probability theory and about the, um, the mistakes, the errors that, that can creep in. Um, in the game of cricket, for example, um, it's very important who wins the toss. At the beginning of a game of cricket, the captains toss a penny um, to see who bats first. And it, it makes a big difference to, to, to strategy. So it's important um, to win the toss if you can. And there are many, many people who think that certain individual captains are better at winning the toss than, than others. Or there are others who think that because so-and-so has won the toss consistently for a long time, it's time, he'd, it's time he lost. And so they would bet against him winning the toss again. So I discuss all that kind of thing in, in that chapter. And then finally... Uh, in chapter 12, What is a Miracle, uh, I return to the idea of supernatural magic, but with the particular examples of uh, religious mi miracles, magic that people believe in because the magic spells have been cast by uh, great prophets or, or what, whatever. Um, and I, I must say that in, in having various debates and things with um, religious people of all persuasions, I've been accused of going after easy targets, sort of nutcases who believe in creationism and things. And so I've taken to having debates with sophisticated theologians, archbishops and people like that. And what's astonished me is, that, is how many of the sophisticated theologians also believe in these naive miracles like uh, water turning into wine. Um, so this is a, a really serious problem that, that people who are ordinarily intelligent and who are sceptical and critical and can, can drive a car and can tie their own shoelaces and things like that, uh, 
nevertheless um, are completely susceptible to total nonsense because it happens to be written down in, in an ancient book. Um, I'm now going to switch to the very last page of the book and I'm going to read out from the last page, which is my kind of credo about science. There are things that not even the best scientists of today can explain, but that doesn't mean we should block off all investigation by resorting to phony explanations invoking magic or the supernatural, which don't actually explain at all. Just imagine how a medieval man, even the most educated man of his era, would have reacted if he had seen a jet plane, a laptop computer, a mobile telephone, a sat-nav device. He would certainly have called them supernatural, miraculous. But these devices are now commonplace, we know how they work, we know that people have built them following scientific principles. The distinguished science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke summed the point up as Clarke's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If a time machine were to carry us forward a century or so, we would see, surely, without a doubt, wonders that today we might think impossible, miracles. They'll not be supernatural, they'll be natural. It's just that our conception of the natural will have broadened out and will be far more amazing than anything that theologians have ever managed to imagine. The more you think about it, the more you realize that the very idea of a supernatural miracle is nonsense. If something happens that appears to be inexplicable by science, you can safely conclude one of two things. Either it didn't really happen, the observer was mistaken or was lying or was tricked, or we have exposed a shortcoming in present-day science. If present-day science encounters an observation or an experimental result that it cannot explain, then we should not rest until we have improved our science so that it can provide an explanation. If it requires a radically new kind of science, a revolutionary science so strange that old scientists scarcely recognize it as science at all, that's fine too. It's happened before. But don't ever be lazy enough, defeatist enough, cowardly enough to say, I don't understand it, so it must be supernatural. It must be a miracle. Say instead that it's a puzzle. It's strange. It's a challenge that we should rise to. Whether we rise to the challenge by questioning the truth of the observation or by expanding our science in new and exciting directions, the proper and brave response to any such challenge is to tackle it head on. And until we have found a proper answer to the mystery, it's perfectly okay simply to say, this is something we don't yet understand, but we're working on it. It's the only honest thing to do. Miracles magic, myths, they can be fun, and I have fun with them throughout this book. Everybody likes a good story, and myths are fun, as long as you don't confuse them with the truth. The real truth has a magic of its own. The truth is more magical in the best and most exciting sense of the word than any myth or made-up mystery or miracle. Science has its own magic, the magic 
of reality. Thank you so much for that, Professor Dawkins. We'll have a few questions, and i actually like to ask the speakers to come up on stage. Uh, Stefan, Lone, Jamko, Nils, or Sara, uh, to have a little discussion with you. I'll, I'll move over here so they can stand there, and maybe you want some water? I've got some here, thanks. Okay. Um, while they come up on stage, I can start with the first question. Sometimes when I talk to people in Sweden, we have a few religious schools in Sweden, about 70, so it's not very much, but still. And I've talked to teachers there who say that, no, 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 we, we, we do teach evolution. We just teach them creation also, and we let them choose. And that is their idea of unbiased uh, teaching. Um, what, how do you respond to that fundamental view of knowledge, which is very strange to me? So long as they give equal time to the myth of Odin and his brothers and <laughs> the Tasmanian Aboriginal myth and every myth from every tribe in West Africa and East Africa and the Far East and, and the Polynesian islands, there are thousands of origin myths. And none of them, some of them are very beautiful, some of them are very poetic. None of them has any reason to believe it any more than any of the others. The scientific one, which is not a myth, um, is the only one that does. So that is, I think, one thing that I would say. It's, of course, a pure historical accident that in Sweden and in Britain, uh, the myth that we happen to have been brought up with is the Judeo-Christian myth, which has absolutely no reason to be preferred than any other myth. Hmm. Um, okay, um, I'd like uh, the previous speakers to, to uh, ask a question to you. May, Sora, if you maybe could take the microphone, which is just behind you, behind Nils. Um, yes. <laughs> there is a microphone there. Yes. Just bring it out. You can take it off the, the stand. <coughs> it's, it's a loose microphone. And uh, which one of you would like to start? Maybe, yeah? Sora, please. <laughs> Do you have a question? on. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, so, Christo already mentioned, right, that you want to explain everything with evolution. I got curious. <laughs> and since you're an expert in evolution, and also you already mentioned the anthropic principle, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about, you know, in my field physics, we have a theory to describe the world. And there are constant features of this, this theory that are impossible for us at the moment at least to explain from first principles, you know, and if you change these, these constants by a tiny amount, then basically you wouldn't be able to form atoms and life would never have occurred. And then, you know, since people cannot explain it, there are quite a few people in my field, and I won't say if I'm one of them or not, that like to now kind of <clears throat> explain this or make it plausible that this could happen by, you know, having multiple universes and we just happen to live in the one where life could have formed. And I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yes, uh, I'm fascinated by this. Um, the, the physical constants, I don't know how many there are, maybe half a dozen, which, which have no explanation. Everything else has an explanation in terms of them, but the physical constants, say half a dozen of them. <coughs> it's as though 
there are half a dozen knobs that can be twiddled. And you could imagine some godlike figure twiddling these knobs to get different values of things like the gravitational constant and the strength of the strong force and with weak force, whatever it is. Um, and as Sarah has just said, um, if any of these knobs is, tw is twiddled to slightly the wrong place, then you, you don't get a universe that, that, that's capable of giving rise to us. So you, you get a universe that fizzles out within the first picosecond of its existence or something of that sort. Or you get a universe in which um, matter doesn't condense into stars and you don't therefore get chemistry, you don't get planets, you don't get life. Um, well, the anthropic principle um, says we, we are here. Clearly we have to be in the kind of universe that's capable of giving rise to us. And so it's no accident that the physical constants or um, us are conducive to giving rise to us. Physicists have said it's no accident when we look up we see stars because we would have to be living in the kind of universe that has stars because you need stars in order to make chemistry, etc. Well, some physicists are, are, I think, happy with that. Others find it rather unsatisfying because although it's perfectly true that we wouldn't be here if the, if the knobs weren't exactly rightly tuned, nevertheless, um, the tuning is very fine. Um, somebody's a philosopher used the example of a firing squad that, um, that um, t ten men firing rifles at one victim, and they all fire, and he's still there alive. And he says, oh, well, obviously they missed, because otherwise I wouldn't be here. But you still need an explanation for why they missed, like there was a conspiracy or something of that sort. Um, so... The, the explanation that I think probably most physicists now favour, which is the one I think Sarah favours, which is that there are many universes, all with their own physical constants, uh, billions of them maybe, a sort of foam of universes, and only a tiny minority of those universes have the necessary qualities to give rise to stars, chemistry and life. And then the anthropic principle kicks in and says we have to be living in one such one such universe. Um, there are some physicists who deny that the t tuning is as fine as all that, pointing out that it's all very well turning one knob at a time, and if you turn any one knob, then the universe collapses. But if you allow yourself to turn more than one at a time, then there may be interactive effects, such that there, are, there may be many more possible universes that, that emerge. Better have another question. Yeah. Okay, I think my question is more simple and less sophisticated than, than Sarah's. Why did you, obviously, reality is full of magic. Why biology? What was making you so fascinated by biology and not by other things? Was there, was there a special magic in biology or was there a special thing that made you a biologist, which you basically... I'm not clever enough to be a physicist. You are not? Clever enough to be a physicist. Yeah. Um, however, be that as it may, I do think it's true that biology has a special magic. I think physics does too. Um, but biology is the study of complexity. Biology is the study of how physical forces, uh, physical entities have somehow been put together into prodigiously complicated engines uh, which um, have the capacity to move around, to feed, to hunt, to jump, to fly, to swim, uh, to develop nervous systems, 
um, sense organs and to think. Um, it is a very, very, very remarkable fact that life exists at all and well repays the hundreds of lifetimes of study. That's not the reason many biologists go into biology. Many biologists go into biology because they're naturalists, because they love birds or insects or plants. Um, and that's another perfectly respectable reason to being, for being a biologist, but it wasn't mine as it happened. Okay. Yeah. Well, Richard, as a common person, I've heard so many amazing things here this evening from you, from you, Sara, and from you, uh, Luna. And um, I'm thinking that I will read this book, your book, for my children. And you have answers to a lot of things, but one thing that they will... One question that they will put to me, I think, the 11 years old, uh, 11 years old will be, Mommy, what happens after we die? Yes. Um, Do you have any reflection on that? Well, um, yes. Um, <laughs> um, I think what happens after we die is just what, exactly what happened before we were born. Um, uh, as, as Mark Twain, I think it was, said, I was dead for billions of years before I was born and never suffered the smallest inconvenience. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it is, there, there, there is something frightening about, about... I think what's frightening is actually the idea of eternity. And um, when you picture the, 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 the scariness of eternity, it's eternity that's frightening, whether you're there or not. And actually, it's a lot more frightening if you're there than if you're not. Um, the, the idea of actually going on existing... I, mean, I wouldn't mind a couple of hundred years, but, but billions of years... Um, I think for billions of years, I'd rather be put under a general anaesthetic. And, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Before Lona, can I just add a question to that? Because... Um, I understand, of course, your view of what happens after death. But my question is, should you tell that to an 11-year-old child? Or should you say, our child is three now, he won't ask for a couple of years, but when he's six years old, should we tell him the truth? Well, that's not a question for a scientist. I mean, that's a sort of moral question, that's an educational question. Um, I'm don't think I'm in favour of telling lies to children because they're comforting. Um, I, I think it's possible to, 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 to give a truthful answer without it, being, uh, without it being so frightening. And perhaps if you answer the question honestly as, as young as they are when they first ask it, maybe it, it beca it's less frightening when, ra rather than telling them a lie and letting them discover um, later on. But that isn't a scientific question. I mean, that's a, no, that's no. a question for individual parents, I think. Yeah, true. Okay, Lona. <laughs> Finally, thank you. <laughs> um, a question about evolution. When we talk about evolution, um, we often, or many people have a, an, an image of evolution happening to human beings in the past. So we happen to evolve and become, you know, homo sapiens. And for many people, uh, they will say, well, Evolution stopped for us. I mean, now we have penicillin, we have you know cancer drugs, and we all have 1.7 ch children. So there's probably no evolution anymore. 
Um, where do you see the selection pressures working today on a population like this? In other words, where do you think that Homo sapiens may be going? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose it is true that in a, a medically advanced society like this one, um, the cutting edge of natural selection has been blunted, and so we're no longer being selected for being swift of limb and keen of eye and good at hunting and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, it's not true that everybody has the has equal number of children. I mean, what, 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 what is true is that it's become rather difficult to die young. It's rather difficult to die before you reach reproductive age. And so, um, the, the historical reasons why we became good at what we do, which is things like running and jumping and thinking, have, have probably been blunted. Um, some people today have large families and some people don't. And if you, if you were to um, divide people up into those with, with large families and those with no children at all, and then ask yourself, look at their genes, and say, is there any statistical difference between this group of people who have lots of children and that group of people who have none? Um, if there is any statistical non-randomness in the genetic um, composition of these two groups, then by definition we have natural selection. Um, exactly how that natural selection is working is obviously going to be very complicated because the reason why people have large families may be because they want large families, uh, because they're incompetent at the use of contraceptives. Um, strictly speaking, we have natural selection in favour of incompetence <laughs> to the extent that people are born by mistake, and many people, of course, are. Um, so. It would be a very, very complicated thing. And in order to give rise to interesting evolutionary change, such that if you came back in 10,000 or 100,000 years, you would see a systematic change, then the difference between those populations would have to be sustained consistently for 100,000 years, which is unlikely. In the case, if you think of any of the reasons why in today's society some people have big families and some people don't. Um, the reason why we have big brains now and Australopithecus three million years ago had a much smaller brain is that there must have been a sustained selection in favour of larger brains. Um, and you've got to think to yourself, what would be a sustained selection pressure that would go on for the next million years? And who can say, because the, the conditions under which we live, the civilized conditions under which we live with medicine and cars and planes and things, goodness knows what, what that's going to be like in, in, in even 100 years, uh, let alone 100,000 years. So I, I would never stick out my neck and predict um, the future of, uh, of, of human evolution. If we've realized the sort of dream of an Arthur C. Clarke and colonize other planets, then I suppose you might start to get speciation, I mean, a divergence into, into a separate species. So, just the last question. So, do you think that we could, in fact, end up like the horseshoe crab and just stay pretty much the same for well, a very long time? It, it, yes, I mean, I suppose we, we might have a good chance of that. I mean, g given that we, we know that there are animals like the horseshoe crab, um, like Lingula, which is, which is an even older um, genus. Um, 
it, it, it's possible that we would be a, a good candidate for that. It, we, we also might be a good candidate for not going extinct. I mean, the great majority of species have gone extinct. 99% of them have gone extinct. And, and if, if ever one were to put money on a species not going extinct, I suppose it might be ours, because we might be able to, you know, the next time a meteorite threatens to hit the Earth, unlike the dinosaurs, we sort of go into underground bunkers and, and things, taking seed banks with us. Stefan. Yeah. Okay, Stefan, the last question for tonight. I, I, I kind of maybe beg to disagree. I don't think that we are a horseshoe crab candidate, so to speak. I think we are much too, uh, uh, have much, too, too much potential for change, so to speak. And my question really is closer related to yours, but it's more kind of post-addicting than predicting. Could you... Uh, identify one particular factor that has uh, uh, explanatory power, why we, among 260 species of primates, have been so terribly successful. All the others are on the red list. Um, well, we are unique in so many ways. I mean, we have, we have language. And one of the consequences of language is we have very rapid cultural evolution, uh, which shows itself in, in art and technology. And so we have the really staggering fact that um, how many years? Only about 60 years elapsed between the Wright brothers' first flight and Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon. Um, that's an astonishing rate of um, advance, which mimics biological advance. It, it isn't biological, of course. It, it, it's the, the, gene, the genome, in this case, is not DNA, but engineers' plans. Um, but it, ecologically speaking, it's, it's rather like evolution in that it enables us to conquer the world. Uh, and possibly endanger the world, perhaps more than possibly. Um, so I, I think that it probably stems primarily from language and then the things that go with language that have enabled us to initiate cultural evolution which mimics biological evolution but perhaps a million times faster. Have five more hours, we could start discussing group yes. selection, I suppose, but I'm afraid we don't. So. Yes. No, I'm afraid we don't. We actually have to finish now, and uh, I just want to thank you all for coming. It's been wonderful to have you here. I think there are some flowers coming in, and uh, let me just say before you give them all an applaud, um, you can find both Richard's and Luna's book outside if you want. It's been wonderful to have you all here. It's a full house. Uh, may the enlightenment stay with you. Thank you.